Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. One of the primary ambitions of this program is to give you direct access to truly great leadership thinkers of our day, academics, CEOs, authors, innovators, who not only possess a highly informed view into the future of work, but who also can, in an hour's time, impart insights that will ensure you grow and evolve as a manager in a truly profound way. And so my listening audience, I have a huge treat for you. My guest today is the longtime Fortune magazine editor, a man who not only has his pulse on the massive transformation happening in the workplace today, but who also is on the vanguard of this change as an award-winning author and business broadcaster. So before we get going, let me set the stage by sharing some of the highlights of Jeff Colvin's remarkable career. Besides being Fortune's senior editor at large, he's the author of several best-selling books, including Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers from Everyone Else, and The Upside of the Downturn, Management Strategies for Difficult Times. As a business commentator, he's heard every day on the CBS radio network. Today, he's made over 10,000 broadcasts to a weekly audience of over 7 million people. And you've probably seen him on TV because he's been a guest on every major news show in the country, including, and this is America, but this is outside of America too. Today, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, and the PBS Nightly Business Report. Apparently, a very high achiever from the get-go, he graduated with honors from Harvard University and holds an MBA from NYU's Stern Business School. And Jeff's newest highly acclaimed book, Humans are underrated. What high achievers know the brilliant machines never will, will be the centerpiece of our discussion today. All of us know that technology is about to change our world in astounding ways, most notably in our workplaces. And few people honestly have a better grasp of what the future looks like, moreover the skills that will be required to succeed in it. And so it's a fantastic honor for me to welcome to the podcast from Paris, France, no less, Mr. Jeff Colvin. Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be with you. Well, I want to start off, you know, one of the things I, I did a little research on you, and I was surprised to learn that your sister is the famous Sean Colvin. Yes. And so I'm always curious. And in fact, almost I think, you know, listeners begun to pick up on this, that I believe that Leaders need to know their people's stories. So I'm always curious about how people are impacted by their upbringings. And, and so I, as we start, I wonder if you could share some of the ways you think maybe your parents or your upbringing in general helped propel both of you to such uncommon success. Uh, yeah, Sean is, uh, as you mentioned, a tremendously successful uh, singer and songwriter. Three Grammys. Hmm. And first of all, since I, I gather you have some of my books and some of her recordings, I want to thank you for supporting the Colvins. <laughs> uh, it's very, very much appreciated. You know, I have often thought, as I look back on my childhood, our childhoods, how incredibly lucky we were to have the parents we had. We grew up in South Dakota, in a small town in South Dakota. And in retrospect, I don't think I could have imagined a better place or time or better parents for growing up. So what did they do to help us? Well, you know, in retrospect, what occurs to me is they encouraged us pretty much constantly. Yes, of course, there were times when we definitely had to be disciplined, but the overall message was encouragement for what we were doing and, you know, the whatever directions we wanted to go we got a lot of encouragement 
to do that. Now, in retrospect, also, you can see some indications of becoming what we became. Both parents were very interested in music. Both parents happened to have wonderful voices and enjoyed singing in the choir and other groups and stuff. So there was a lot of that in the family. Both my parents pursued their educations into adulthood and actually both changed careers by going to school later in adulthood. And so my father became a university professor halfway through his career, and uh, my mother became a lawyer halfway through her career. So there was a lot of self-improvement, getting better. My mother said something to me recently that really stuck with me, because I didn't know this. By the way, Sean and I are two of four kids, and the other two, uh, our sister Kay and our brother Clay, also, you know, are just doing tremendously in their lives. And what our mom said was that neither she nor my father ever told any of us to do our homework. It was just expected that we would do it. And we did it. And I thought there was a great deal of wisdom. And I say this as a parent whose kids are now grown up. I, I realize how much wisdom there was in that. Well, you know, as I'm listening to you, the things that I took away, three things, high expectations. Yes. Modeling. Right. Modeling the behavior. Yes. And interestingly enough, as we get started here, the word encouragement literally means to give heart to people. So yes. <laughs> your parents were giving you heart. I think that's fantastic. So thank you yep. for that. I love hearing that story. And so as we transition into talking about your book, for starters, I'm especially pleased to hear you believe humans are underrated. <laughs> but at the same time, there are a lot of terrifying reports out there saying that robots and artificial intelligence are about to obliterate all our jobs. So based on all the research that you did for your book, can you tell us what jobs are likely to be affected and how fast this is all going to happen? Yeah, I did a lot of work on that. And I, of course, continue to do work because the news is changing every day. Here's what we have to accept. And it isn't what we always hear, but it's the reality that we have to accept. Technology is doing more and more jobs, not just faster and cheaper than we humans are, but better at the same time. And for a long time, technology was taking over so-called middle-skilled jobs, factory jobs that tended to be repetitive. At the lower end of the job hierarchy, the low-skilled jobs, a lot of them turned out to be physical, and they, it was very difficult for robots to do them. To cut people's hair, of course, that can be a very high-level job too, but to uh, work in a restaurant kitchen, to uh, work as a gardener, it was very difficult for technology to actually do these things. And so those jobs were not affected, and neither were jobs at the higher end of the scale. Doctors, lawyers, you know, accountants, other professionals. There was so much intellect required there, so many years of education, that technology wasn't really getting into them either. Well, now the technology is advancing so fast that it is going into both those ends of the job spectrum faster and faster. So at the high end, for example, here's something I just learned about. Earlier this year, a test was done, some research, where 20 experienced lawyers were given a test. It had been devised by law professors at three of the top tier law schools. And here's what the test consisted of. The lawyers were given five contracts to look at, and their job was to identify the key 
issues, the key legal issues that were present in these contracts. Of course, the law professors had figured all that out ahead of time. Well, the human lawyers, the 20 experienced lawyers did well on this test. They identified 85% of the key legal issues in the contracts. Then the same test was given to some artificial intelligence software. Exactly the same question, identify the issues. Well, the software did better than the humans. It identified 95% of the key issues in these contracts, but there's more. The human lawyers needed on average 92 minutes to do this task. The software did it in 26 seconds. And not only did it that incredibly faster, but better. Now, being a lawyer takes three years of postgraduate education before you're even allowed to do it, right? And yet, here is software doing it cheaper, faster, and better than humans. And by the way, there are plenty of other examples in the legal world. It's happening in surgery, believe it or not, autonomous robots, meaning they're on their own, being developed to do surgery better than human surgeons. It's happening, and human surgeons have told me that it's happening. At the lower end, I used to say, look, the most secure job in the world is the guy who climbs the utility pole to fix stuff up top there, right? It's dangerous. It's difficult. You never know what you're going to encounter when you get up to the top of the pole and so forth. Well, I was completely wrong. There are now utility pole climbing robots that are being developed that are going to go do it. The point I'm making is the technology is getting better and better. And we need to accept the fact that it's going to keep getting better because the technology gets roughly twice as good every two years. So this is the first part of what you asked me, and I'm going to stop there. But this is the first very sobering part of this subject. The technology really is great, and it's getting better at a, an accelerating rate. And it's not going to stop. Well, okay. So you've scared me now. <laughs> right. Think, that was the right. idea. So you've got all of our attention here in terms of what's going to happen and it's low end, high end and everything in between here. So what's going to be left for us? Give us the upside of all of this. And I think I saw a McKinsey study that showed that, you know, in just the next seven or eight years that up to a third of all jobs in America could be taken away. So talk a little bit about what's the obligation of companies if they're going to be replacing people and just putting people on the street or are they? Will there be new jobs that are going to be created? So what's the big vision here? Yeah. Well, the big vision is we are now facing a huge question, a really huge question that is in one sense unprecedented. And here it is. What is going to be the big picture effect of this advancing technology, today's advancing technology, on the standard of living of people in the economy? Because for 200 years, it's been a simple question. Advancing technology raises standards of living. It has always done so. Now, look, advancing technology always has eliminated jobs, but it has also enabled the creation of new jobs that were higher productivity jobs, higher paying jobs. And thus, the overall effect has been an increase in employment and a rise in living standards 
such as we have never seen in the history of humanity till the past 200, 250 years. That's been what technology has done as it advances. The big unprecedented question is, is it going to continue to be the case? And in my research for the book, what I found was that for the first time, informed people, economists, technologists, high-level business people, if you ask them that question, 10 years ago, 98% of them would have said, we know the answer. It's going to be the historical pattern, rising living standards, more jobs. You ask that question today, it's 50-50. That has never happened before. Half of them think maybe this time is different. It's not going to produce more jobs. It's not going to produce higher living standards. So that's the big unprecedented question. Now you ask, do companies have an obligation What if they're going to be eliminating jobs? Well, I'm going to say something that may be unpopular, but I'll tell you why I'm saying it. I don't think companies have an obligation to create new jobs when they eliminate old jobs. And here's why I say that. When the McCormick Reaper was patented in 1837, about 70% of the U.S. workforce worked in agriculture. Now, today, that percentage is less than 2%. And it's still falling, by the way. Now, should we say that the agriculture industry had an obligation to create new agriculture jobs while it was eliminating old ones with automation and mechanization? Would America be better off today if 70% of our workforce still worked in agriculture? Well, I think the answers are clearly no. We should be glad that the agriculture industry was able to eliminate those jobs. It enabled the creation of new jobs, but they happen to be in other industries. So I don't think companies have an obligation to replace the jobs they eliminate. They do have some obligation, I think, to help the people whose jobs they're eliminating, either just financially or with new training. And look, strictly, legally speaking, they don't have that obligation at all. I'm talking about, you know, ethically, morally, as members of society, I do think they have some obligation to do that. And some of them, especially the great big ones, are doing that. How so? Well, they offer new training. I mean, they say, look, here are skills that are going to be valuable, and they may help you keep a job here in our company, but they may just help you go get a job someplace else, but we will give you the training. And so you see big companies like uh, Siemens in Germany or uh, some of the car companies in the U.S., doing this to help people. And they can promise jobs, but they can at least do some helping of the people whose jobs are going to be eliminated. Well, let me transition into the heart of your book. The title of your book makes it clear that you believe human skills are going to hold the yes. highest value in the world. So yes. as we transition you know, from this fear, let's talk about the practical side of things. So you believe that really comes down to human skills are going to hold the highest value in this world with automation being exponentially implemented across you know, every industry. So how did you arrive at that conclusion? Well, I'll tell you, and, and what we're going to find is that you and I are very aligned on this, lead from the heart. You're phrase and your title it really says it extremely well. Here's what I came to find as I did the research on this. We faced this question that I referred to about whether we're going to have enough new jobs. My own view is, yeah, we're going to have enough new jobs. People will always find something to do. The question that we face as individuals is, 
will our job, our own job personally, be a high-value job or a low-value job? Is it going to be a job where we can continue to increase our living standard or a low-value job where we'll be lucky just to maintain it or just to maintain a sort of okay living standard, just a barely barely acceptable living standard? And I think the difference between the high-value jobs and the low-value jobs will be skills of deep human interaction. And the way I arrived at this was by observing first, don't ask what computers inherently cannot do. Because our our response to this issue has always been that. The first thing people say is, okay, I, I get what you're saying. Let's just figure out what computers can't do. Just by their nature, they can't do. And then we'll do that. The trouble is, whenever we've asked that question, we've gotten the answer wrong. You know, there were very smart people in the past who've said computers could never uh, play chess at a very high level. They'll never translate languages very well. They'll never, ever be able to drive a car. Well, all of those people, of course, were proven wrong. So don't ask what computers inherently cannot do. Instead, ask this question. What is it that we as human beings are driven to do? by the way we are wired? What is it that we will value and do just because it is in our deepest nature, regardless of whether computers can do it or not? And when you ask that question, you get a clear answer, which is we are hardwired for skills of human interaction, dealing with one another, ideally in person, face-to-face, but dealing with other human beings. We are truly hardwired, and the scientists on this are fascinating. We are truly hardwired to interact in a deep way with others. And the ability to do that well is what's going to distinguish high-value workers from low-value workers. And it isn't just theory, because we see it happening already. How so? If you ask employers what they want most. I'm thinking of a survey that was done of a large number of very large employers worldwide. What do you want now in employees? What is it you most need? The answer they give is skills of co-creativity, cultural understanding, cultural sensitivity, managing diverse employees. It's all skills of human interaction. They weren't saying, you know, we need digital analytical skills. They're important, but they're down on the list. What they most want and can't get enough of are these skills of deep human interaction. That's what they say. In fact, I was particularly struck by something I heard from the CIO, the chief information officer of one of the world's largest retailers. The the CIO, he hires coders, software writers, hundreds of them. And you kind of think of these people as probably the ones who are going to be the last ones to need skills of deep human interaction, right? Because you picture them sitting in their cube writing software, and that's just what they do. Well, what he said was, I need people who are empathetic and collaborative. It was exactly these human skills. He says, I can't have a great IT architect who has to be locked in a room. And the reason he said this was they must be able to feel 
the effect of the software that they're writing on the users. Hmm. And they must be able to collaborate with one another because our problems are too hard for any one person to solve on their own. And so if they can't collaborate, if they can't empathize with the user for whom they're creating software, they are low-value workers. So even in, in software, skills of deep human interaction are the dividing line between high-value and low-value workers. I'm not sure if it was in your book or something else that I read recently that indicated that, um, and this is sort of a paradox, but also very much aligned to what you just said, which is that many of the coder jobs are going to go away because machine learning is teaching computers how to do the coding themselves. So they're actually yeah, reinventing their own worlds, you know. It's, so those jobs are going to go away unless they have that human aspect. That's absolutely right. And I had a reference to it in my book, but it is, of course, just accelerating so that, yeah, more and more humans aren't even going to be writing the code at all. Code is going to be writing code. And, you know, this, by the way, this sometimes raises the question of are parents wise to be sending their five-year-olds to coding camp, which has become kind of popular? And my view is, well, yeah, it's fine. But it's fine in the sense that we all need to be literate. We all need to be able to read and write, even though very few of us will ever make a living by writing. Similarly, we need to understand coding. It's part of modern literacy, even if very few of us will ever actually write any code. So, yeah, it's fine to teach little kids about it and to teach grown-ups about it, even if they don't know anything about it. But not with the anticipation that it's going to be your career, because that in the future is probably not going to be the possibility that it is today. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. Pretty fascinating, right? I mean, you, you think at any point in time, okay, this is what I want my kid to learn. And then by the time the kid's mastered it, the technology has been transcended and they're, you know, completely ill-equipped. It reminds me of your parents' example, which is to never stop learning. I mean, obviously, right. you just have to constantly reinvent yourself. And I wonder if you have any words of advice for people related to change, because Change is fundamentally hard on people. There's tremendous evidence that organizations can implement change because people resist it, they fear it. So what's your advice to people about not going into fear, not resisting this, but embracing the future here and you know, any techniques that you might have? It's such a great question. And it, frankly, it's something that I work on with myself because uh, you know I'm a human being and what you say is true we kind of instinctively resist it. And by the way, this is not a new problem. You know, I think back to uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, the one who famously said, you can't step into the same river twice. But he had a bigger message than that. He said, you can't step into the same river twice because it's not the same river and you're not the same person. And his point was, not just rivers flow, everything flows. Everything, you, the river, and everything around you, everything in this world is changing constantly, and it's never going to stop. And people had a hard time with it 2,500 years ago, and they're having a harder time with it today because the change really is so much faster. And so the reason I mentioned that little reference to Heraclitus is it helps people to know that this isn't just their problem. 
this is a problem that goes back as far as human history goes, as far as we know about what humans were thinking. And so the only good advice I have is to realize that this is a larger phenomenon than you think. It's not just your life that's changing. It's everybody's life everywhere. And it's going to get faster. And so you might as well embrace it because you have no choice. And so think about what if I embraced it? How would I think if I were actually comfortable with this? And over time, you can start to get comfortable with it. But you got to make yourself because instinctively you're going to resist it. I'm very glad I asked that question. But somewhere around the middle of our podcast discussions, we take a break for something we call the heartbeat round. Our audience really enjoys getting to know our guests more personally. So I'm about to ask you 15 questions in a row and I want you to answer each one in a heartbeat. You ready to go? I think so. <laughs> okay. Well, the first one is a uh, is a softball question for you. And then the next ones, they're no harder, but this one should be easy for you. Number one, newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? Well, I would have to say Fortune magazine on that one, Mark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the quality you admire most in other people? Courage. You've interviewed luminaries, including Ben Bernanke, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Colin Powell, both of the Bush presidents. Of these people and any others that you've sat down with to interview, who is the most human? Perhaps surprisingly, I have to say Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric. He had a way of being open and connecting that I don't think I've seen in other top leaders. Oh, fantastic. The greatest book you've ever read? Incredibly hard question. have to say the Iliad. Everything is in there. You can read it over and over. It launched Western literature. Yeah, everything you need is in there. Meditation practice, yes or no? No, I regret to say. I'd love to, but I don't. World leader of any era that you most admire? have to say Lincoln on that. Mine too. Huh. Suit or business casual? <laughs> Sorry, these are your questions. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, People at work and, and my family would tell you the same thing I'll tell you. Suit for sure. Nothing wrong with business casual, but for me, yeah, suit. The quality that you believe derails the most leadership careers? Uh, what I've seen was best expressed by Larry Bossidy, former CEO of Honeywell Allied Signal, long career at GE before that who said when he watches leaders and they're being developed and then they go off the tracks and don't make it, the way he puts it is they don't grow, they swell. Wow. Okay. On Mount Rushmore, in the state that you were born in, South Dakota, Presidents George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln are immortalized. I think I know the answer to this one, but who do you, th who do you think is the greatest <laughs> leader amongst these four men? Yeah, we, we've telegraphed the answer to this one, uh, absolutely. But yes, Abraham Lincoln, clearly. All great leaders there, truly great leaders, but I got to give it to Lincoln. Quote that best captures your life philosophy. It's from something from Epictetus in ancient Greek, and it is, although you are not yet a Socrates, you should live as someone who at least wants to be a Socrates. <laughs> Skill improvement you're working on right now. It is something that we talked about, which is the idea that everything is flowing, as, as Heraclitus. But everything is changing. And I, I personally am working on embracing that reality and seeing it everywhere I look. And it, it takes work, and I'm working on it. 
Mets or Yankees? Yankees. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received? Confront reality. It's so simple, so obvious, and it's certainly a personal weakness of mine to try not to do that sometimes. Confront reality. Favorite band or singer? Well, since I gather we're talking about popular music here, gotta say Sinatra. At his best, he remains without peer. And the life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life? There are no triumphs or defeats. Don't think of your life that way. After both of those things, it will go on. Thank you again. Let's get back to some more questions. I want to get into some of what you mean by being human and what are these skills and behaviors. And the first one has to do with empathy. And, you know, I'm reading everything I can possibly get my hands on these days. And there's tremendous evidence that for whatever reason, that these emerging generations, Gen Y and Gen Z, are depraved of empathy is really the way it yeah. comes out, right? And so we've got this society that's on this steep decline. And in contrast to this, you believe that being empathetic, and I'm going to define it the way you did, which is it means to have the ability to not only discern what other people are thinking and feeling in any given moment, but couple that with the ability to respond to people appropriately. That's empathy. That's your definition. And this is emerging as a hugely important skill. So tell us why empathy is important, why this is emerging, and maybe if we've got Gen Y and Gen Z listeners here, what you might encourage them to do to uh, elevate themselves a little bit in their compassion department. Yeah, it's important for a number of reasons. And again, I'm focused now on economic issues. You can talk a lot about why empathy is important in personal issues and in your own life outside of work, but I'm going to focus on work now. It's because the skills of effective teams and effective workers who deal with people outside the organization depend enormously on empathy more than we would ever even imagine. So, for example, when you are, the easiest example is people who are in sales, okay, because they are, you know, dealing with an outside person and being able to understand what that person is thinking and feeling, even they don't express, which is very often the way, is the key to be able to respond so that you can solve their problem for them. And that's, you know, that's what selling is ultimately about, is solving their problem for them. And I say this because so much of sales is being totally bereft of a human interaction at all. Google has advertising sales greater, I say this to someone from the magazine industry, Google's advertising revenue is greater now than the advertising revenue of the entire American magazine industry, okay? And virtually all of that advertising revenue on Google involves essentially no human interaction. It's all automated. I come from a business where some of our most valuable people were the ones who took clients lunch every day, sometimes lunch and dinner every day. Okay, that's what it was all about. No more. So in sales, a deep, intense human interaction is the only thing that is going to keep a customer talking to you because 
if you don't really offer them that, they might as well just do their business automatically online and so forth. I'm getting into some other material that I I know we're going to come to uh, later, but within the organization, this is what surprises a lot of people. Within the organization, effectiveness in teams depends upon empathy more than anything else. And that goes against what almost all people believe, against what they've read. The research is clear and it's stunning. It says that effectiveness does not come from the cohesion or motivation or satisfaction of the team, does not come at all from the IQ of the smartest person on the team. It comes a little bit from the average IQ of the team. But what it comes from mostly is the ability of the team members to read one another. What the researcher called the social sensitivity of the team members, but it's the same thing as empathy. It's their ability to read one another. And the reason that's the key to team effectiveness is that teams are effective when they get a lot of ideas out onto the table. And so that means everyone speaks up. And if you can sense that somebody else on the team wants to speak up, but they're not vocalizing what they want, and then you get them to speak up. And we've all seen that happen. And then they come to a rapid evaluation and consensus on what the good ideas are. And again, that depends on sensing what the others are thinking and feeling. We're all talking about these things around a table saying, uh-huh, hmm, really? Mm. You know, these little tiny expressions, people who are socially sensitive, who have empathy, sense all of that. They read it and they put it together and they arrive at a consensus quickly. And that, the social sensitivity of the team members, the empathy, is more important in team effectiveness than all the other factors combined. Well, it's so interesting because you started off by saying that this is not common knowledge. I'm going to extrapolate and say that it's not common practice because in business, yeah, yeah, right. what, you know, what we do is we pit people against one another, even on, in, you know, within teams. You know, you look at Microsoft, you know, a few years ago, they were they had this limited opportunity for people to achieve success. So, you know, the top 20, 25 percent of the people on any given team were going to be rated high and the bottom 10 were at risk of losing their job and everyone else in between was going to be determined to be average. And so what you had were people that were sabotaging each other, not collaborating, not they had no motivation to be empathetic because that was their enemy. And, you know, Microsoft gets called out for this, the Ballmer era. But this is pretty common in business today still, where we think about pitting teams together and pitting people together, pitting against each other, rather. So what would your advice be based on what you just said? In other words, what are you advocating for as a practical you know, practice in business? Uh, it's a great question because it really gets at at least two key issues. One is about what Microsoft was doing then. What they were doing had at its kernel a worthy idea, but they weren't doing it very well, in my opinion. The worthy idea was it was just supposed to be a tool that would force managers to have an honest conversation with everybody who reported to them, to tell them that they weren't doing well if, in fact, they weren't doing well, and to differentiate the great performers 
from the not great performers to really reward the best ones. And that is important. That's valid. It's not humane to tell people they're doing fine if they're not doing fine. And unfortunately, a lot of humans have a tendency to do that. So what Microsoft was trying to do was find a way to make managers have honest conversations with the people they manage. Now, as I said, I don't think they did it well at all. The other thing that comes out of it is what we should encourage and should model in behavior is what Adam Grant, who has written some wonderful books, calls giver behavior. In my book, I talk a lot about some of the earlier research that was done on this that proves the value of giver behavior. The idea that organizations are most successful when individuals are happy to help others without demanding or even expecting recompense in any way. They're just happy to help. And that's a cultural thing. And so what leaders can do best is model that behavior and encourage it. Reward and it. Mm-hmm. Reward. Mm-hmm. Exactly it. I'm a big fan of that book, Give and Take. I think that's yep. one of the most remarkable. I mean, the conclusion is that as long as you're doing your work while you're being generous, these are the infinitely more successful people in our society. And I think the more companies understand that, the better off and leaders too, right? So I want to dig back into this idea of collaboration because we don't really foster collaboration in the sense of, I'll give you an example. I worked at a financial institution and I worked directly for the marketing director who had representation. He was responsible for the whole world, if you were, advertising, market research, you know, sales management, you name it. Right. And so he had this very big world, but his customer were all the bank branches that were all over the country. So he had to be supporting them. And in a meeting one day, he said, you know, I'm getting sick and tired of these bank pukes complaining about the work we're doing here, you know? (laughs) And I just thought, wow, you've just lost sight of your whole (laughs) reason for being, you know? But that was not uncommon. I saw it over and over where departments (laughs) are out, you know, finances out to get me or what have you. And so how do you big picture encourage leaders to reach out and cultivate relationships outside of their own independent teams? Yeah, what a good question that is because one of the findings in the research here is that the most effective teams have members who do just what you just said. They go out into the world beyond their function, beyond one another, and talk to people and get insights that they normally wouldn't get at all because it's outside their field. But they get these insights, and then they bring them back, and when they get together with the team, they talk about them. And those spark ideas in other team members. And this, you know, going out into the world to learn stuff, into the the distant world that other team members probably aren't going to be in, and then coming back and bringing their experiences is absolutely crucial to effective teams. And it's one reason most teams are not very effective, because they don't have many people like that. So that's one thing that your question raises, and I'm very glad you asked about it. Now, in the case, for example, of the uh, story you just told, What you think, for starters, is that maybe that person is not in the right job. And and it's funny you mentioned because I've heard a very similar story from other people uh, in completely different businesses where somebody who's a top leader in the company, not the top leader, but high level, 
says, you know, and this is someone who was in charge of product design, saying, you know, these customers are just nothing but trouble. You know, I'm designing great products, and they're just giving us problems. (laughs) And the CEO said, you know what, this is not the right guy for the right job, And and he took care of it. And so what I'm getting at, I guess, is the most important thing a company can do is just make sure the right person is in that job. If someone is just inclined to think that customers are trouble rather than your reason for being, it's probably going to be difficult to change them. But, you know, I also think, though, Jeff, that we're tribal. Human beings are tribal. So if I'm in marketing and you're in sales, we're already on different teams, right? Even though we're in the same business and our success depends upon each other. So I wonder if you have any thoughts around getting over the tribalness, getting over the they're not us mentality that influences all of us. Yeah, and sales versus marketing is one of the (laughs) one of the classic tribal conflicts. The one thing that I've seen work surprisingly effective, surprising because it's so simple, is just to get them physically together. Not all the time necessarily, but just get them physically together in an informal setting, enough so that they get to know one another on a personal level. And it becomes not marketing versus sales, but it becomes me and him and her and individuals who be over in some other department. And it sounds crazy and it sounds so, but I've seen that work wonders. Just the idea of getting together and having frank conversations and understanding that the person you claim to hate is just another human being like you, much more in common with you than not in common with you. And it's not that hard to make this happen. But it does take definite effort, and it's incredibly effective. I love that idea. If you just keep in mind just another human being like you, it sort of softens any feelings of competition or us versus them. I think you really nailed it. So thank you. Now I want to put you on the hot seat a little bit, at least with one constituency on our audience. In your book, you say that there's tremendous evidence that women make groups smarter. (laughs) (laughs) And you're suggesting that women have a strong advantage over men in the future workplace. And it really largely boils down to the fact that, that they're wired differently than men. So take us through this and tell our male listeners how to digest and apply this knowledge and make the women here feel really good. Absolutely. You know, when I got into this, I, I knew some of the research, but I found there was a lot that I didn't know. And the deeper I got into it, the more fascinating and the more persuasive it became. So a couple of points. First of all, I remember a minute ago, I was talking about what makes teams most effective. And the finding was the social sensitivity of the team members, ability to read one another, to figure out what the other ones are thinking and feeling, and then to respond in some emotionally appropriate way. Well, I often ask groups of people, look, there's a lot of research on this, but let me just ask you, on average, who do you think better at discerning what another person is thinking or feeling, whatever it may be, and responding in some emotionally appropriate way. Who do you think is better on average, men or women? And when you put it that way, we all know the answer already. 
you know, I say there's research, but do we really need the research? Don't we all know from life experience that on average, women are better at that than men? Now, I emphasize that's on average. It doesn't mean every woman is better than every man. That is not correct. And we can all get better at these skills, as I'll talk about maybe later, but we can all get better, men and women. So none of us are stuck with where we are right now with those skills. But on average, yes, and this is what the research shows. On average, women are absolutely better at these skills of social sensitivity. So that's the first thing. And here's the really interesting place where that leads with regard to teams. Okay, if the team's social sensitivity is the most important factor in team effectiveness, which it is, and if women have higher social sensitivity than men do on average, what that tells you is, okay, then a team that's entirely women is probably going to be more effective than a team that had any men on it at all. And the researchers went down that path and they found that, yeah, actually, that seems to be true. And I mention this because it goes against conventional wisdom that tells you that mixing up teams gives you the best results, right? Some men and some women. Well, the researchers said, look, uh, that's maybe the conventional view, but the research says, Maybe not. It's, the research says a team that is 100% women is on average going to be more effective than a team that's just 90% women. So <laughs> that's the first thing to think about. But yes, that's one reason that I, I say this is increasingly a women's world as technology advances. It makes teams more effective. On average, women do some other things different. Since they have more sensitivity, another term for empathy, then for all these other reasons I mentioned earlier that empathy is important, it also means that they have an advantage on average. There are other things too, besides social sensitivity. Literally, as well as metaphorically, women take a wider view of the world than men do. Men take, again, literally and metaphorically, take a narrower view that focuses further out. Women take a wider view that focuses not that far out. And what I argue in the book is that in today's world, it's that second characteristic, that that second combination of characteristics is more valuable, taking a wider view not so far out. I mean, every company today is in danger of being disrupted by a company it never even thought was a competitor. It's the competitor they never saw coming that scares CEOs the most, and I talk to a lot of them. Well, who's going to be best at detecting that threat and responding to it sooner? I think someone who takes the wider view, who looks beyond the traditional narrow set of competitors. Someone who looks not so far out because in today's incredibly fast-changing world, Trying to look further out is likely to be futile and a waste of effort. And so in this way also, it seems to me that women on average come to this economic world we've got and are having with an advantage, a built-in advantage. So if I'm a man, and I guess I am, what do I learn from this? What do you want me to do? I'm obviously, you don't want me to become a woman. No, no. But you're suggesting that there are some attributes that I might want to 
cultivate, right? Correct. And that gets to a really central question, which is, I've been talking from the beginning here about these skills of deep human interaction. Well, are skills really, or are they traits? Are they just something you're born with? And what I've learned is a lot of people think they're traits. They think that, you know, so-and-so is just a natural peep person. They were born that way. So-and-so just isn't. They think you're born with these things or you're not, and you can't do much about it. That's not correct. These are skills. They can be trained and developed and advanced. And we see organizations training these skills today. So what I would say to men is, look, get better at these skills of human interaction. Get better at the skills of empathy and social sensitivity. You can work on these things. And there are different ways to do it. Here's a real simple, easy way to get into it. And it's fun, too. There is a test you can take. It's real short and simple called the reading the mind in the eyes test. Just Google reading the mind in the eyes and it'll come up right away. You can do it. You can have people in your team at work do it for free. You don't need any permissions or anything like that. Uh, You can just do it. And it's 36 photographs that just show the eye portion of somebody's face. Just these rectangles that just show the eyes of somebody's face. And then it gives you four or five choices for what is this person thinking or feeling. All you can do is look at the eyes and just click on whatever you think they're feeling or thinking. And then you go through them all and it tells you your score, how many you got right and how many you got wrong. Just doing that exercise will get you thinking about your ability to discern what someone else is thinking and feeling and what you could understand and what you couldn't. It helps, by the way, to have a group of people do that and then talk with one another about Mm -hmm. their experience, what they learned about themselves just from doing this. And then it turns out there are lots of exercises you can do to get yourself better. As a way to start, I recommend looking at the two books that have been produced on this issue by the Cleveland Clinic. And people think, well, that's I'm not in the healthcare business. Doesn't matter. Cleveland Clinic did some pioneering research on how to train these skills of relationships. And even though it's about the healthcare industry, you immediately realize that what they've written is about every industry. It's about all people. And it can really show you the way. How how to do it will depend on what business you're in and what you're like, but those are great places to start. Is there a title for those books? One is called Service Fanatics, and the other one I don't have in front of me at the moment. Off the top of my head, I can't remember, but if you find one, you'll be able to find the other. Interestingly, the Cleveland Clinic, many people know, is the greatest heart care hospital in the world. So once again, we keep coming back to the same topic here. I want to remind everyone that Fortune magazine for, you know, over 30 years, since I think 1984 was the first year that you published the 100 best companies to work for a list in a book. And then 98, you guys came back and started publishing it every year since. And you do this beyond America. So people in all the countries listening in are familiar with this list. I want to ask you to transition away from your book and really pin down what you personally believe are the critical few leadership qualities 
that specifically end up creating workplaces where employees thrive and organizations excel? Well, you're right. We've done this for so many years. The absolute clearest conclusion that comes out of all the research is that great places to work are great because of the human relationships inside those organizations. It is not the perks. It's not the benefits. It's not programs and practices. It is high quality personal relationships in the workplace. That is the absolute indisputable conclusion that comes out of this. So if you want great place to work. And by the way, we've done huge research and outsiders have done research also on this group of companies and found that on average, they way outperform average companies. They are terrific performers. If that's what you want, then your objective is to make sure you've got great human relationships in the organization. And what can the leader do? The leader can start by modeling that behavior. And he said, what specifically does that mean? Here's what I would say. It means talking to each of the people whom that leader manages, finding opportunity to talk to them about their lives, about their jobs for sure, but about their lives. Get to know them personally. Talk to them about their overall life and care. And if you're pretending to care, see that and it won't work at all. Care. Find out about what's going on in their lives and keep up with them. Talk to them about this regularly, more broadly. What leaders can do and I think must do either in their role as leaders is what I call run toward human issues at the foundation of problems. Look, every leader in an organization knows that the real problems, the hard problems, the human issues, the technology is usually working. If there are problems, it can be fixed. The real problems are human issues. And in a lot of organizations, managers tend to run away from the human issues. Sometimes the culture makes it very difficult to engage them. I say run toward the human issues because they are at the foundation of all the problems and be candid in talking about them. The culture may also fight that but be candid in talking about them. Defend that culture ferociously. It's fantastic because, you know, I, I ask these questions not knowing what answer I'm going to get. And, <laughs> you know, you could just as easily say, well, they're really great on managing the P&L or their operations and systems are the greatest. And that would have kind of blown the whole interview. If that's, <laughs> you know, so I'm glad that this is your conclusion. It's because it's our conclusion. It's the whole point of all of this. And it's stunning the way you articulate it. And by the way, how you anticipate. I'm listening more in this podcast because you anticipate the next question. So I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. He's just, he's <laughs> anticipating what everybody's listening. I think it's obviously your 10,000 broadcasts, all that experience makes you so expert at this. I'd love to keep this thing going forever, Jeff, but I want to give you the last word. Are there any final thoughts on how leaders can best succeed in the coming years? I mean, there's going to be a lot of change. Everything is just so exponential. And on where they'd be wise to invest their energy starting now. Sure. And it really is summarizing the message I've been trying to convey, which is focus on the deep human skills in yourself and in the people around you. Focus on the relationships 
inside the organization and make them genuine, deep relationships, not the kind of surface relationships, outwardly cordial, but not deep at all, shallow relationships that typically we have. And understand that it's going to feel different. In most organizations, it's not a simple change. It's going to feel different. Accept that, embrace it, and decide that that's what you're going to do. The human capital in your business is the most valuable capital, regardless of industry, and it is becoming more valuable every day. That must continue and become more so. And so what I'm saying is my advice on how to make sure that happens. Thank you, sir. It's been a true delight to speak with you all the way across the pond into Paris, France. And <laughs> I said at the beginning, and I'm going to conclude with the same thing. Having you join us here today has just been a tremendous honor. And the wisdom you shared, we are so all very, very grateful to you, sir. So thank you so very much. You are very kind, Mark. It was really my pleasure. Best to you, sir. Likewise. As we close, I really hope you found this discussion with Jeff Colvin as compelling and as inspiring as I did. And it's a sign of huge progress to me that a man of his experience and knowledge would tip his hat to the lead from the heart philosophy as he just did. And to use his word, that's very encouraging. So I hope you'll keep listening and that you'll also introduce our new podcast to all your friends and colleagues. And before I bid adieu, oh wait, I'm not the one in France. Let me thank my team, sound engineer Eric Oz and my site manager Randy Yon for their incredible work. And until next time, I'll leave you with the reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.